this is, um, so 26 years ago, I mean, this is deja vu. I, I, I thought about this this morning, 26 years ago, um, January 8th, I got married on 26 years ago. So this is our 26th anniversary. And then we went off on our honeymoon and then we got back into, by the way, you guys might want to orient your chairs around. I mean, they gave me till nine o'clock. So you guys are going to be here for a while. So get comfortable, get comfortable <laughs> or your neck is going to hurt. So, uh, I'm looking at the lady right here in blue. What is your name? Yeah, you. Jessica, your neck might hurt after a while. Okay, so I can see all the rest of your eyes. Okay. Um, so I got back from my honeymoon, and Janet got married. Janet got engaged to an... Same time you did. <laughs> and let me remind you, I'm on drugs tonight, so this, this should be a lot of fun. Um, Janet got engaged to an engineer, got married to a pastor. That was in a three-month period. But, um, both the same person. Both the same person. And um, when we got back from our honeymoon, our, our senior pastor um, at that point in time called me and said, Brent, you just, I know you're getting back from your honeymoon, but you just need to come to the pastors and wives retreat. I mean, which was in, um, it was an Indiana Association of Regular Baptist Churches. It was at this same time of the year. It was very much like what you're doing here tonight. And so 26 years ago was my first experience with something like this. And there I was a, a young budding pastor. And now I get to speak at something like this. So this was deja vu um, for me as I was coming up here today. Now, how many of you have, um, some of you know me and Janet because you've been to Faith Church and the Biblical Counseling Conference there, or you've been to a, one of our regional conferences um, can I just see a hand of how many of you have uh, seen Janet or I? Not that you should have, or you've heard us. Okay, that'll just tell me that you guys cannot um, let, you cannot reveal my jokes because you know how this goes, right? You get a few good sermons, or you th- at least you think it's a good sermon, and then you take it on the road and you tell the same jokes all the time. So <laughs> laugh like you f- it's your first time, okay? Um, and let me see what else I want to say. I'm here to serve you. That's one of the things I was going to say. I'm here to serve you. So Janet and I, yes, I have things planned. I have a little booklet for you. We have notes. Um, but I'm not, I don't want this to be expository preaching. I'm going to exposit the scripture. But um, I, would, I, I tend to be more an, an interactive guy. I'll ask some questions along the way. So um, I would like you to be interactive too. Just know that I can outweigh you. It'll give me a chance to rest my voice and not cough. So I can outweigh you if I ask a question and you don't answer. I'll just wait till you do. Okay? <laughs> and um, so with that, all the details in mind, let's start with... Um, oh, there's one more thing. One more political thing. This thing is just the, the biggest pulpit ever. <laughs> Who do I look like? Mini Mike Bloomberg, right? Mini Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> Okay, enough politics. <laughs> so, I'm not, anyway, um, I start with if you want to, if you want to hear anything I want to say, it would be good for you to know who's talking here. So, um, let me give you a little bit about my story. That was a cough almost coming on. Um, probably not going to tell you my salvation story. I'll tell you a little bit about what draw, drew me into ministry. So those of you who know this story cannot answer this question, okay? So something amazing happened in 1977. 
Does anybody who has not heard me or seen me know what that is? 1977 is an amazing year. You have never heard me and seen me? Why did you say Star Wars? That's what, okay, you get a prize. Here's a prize. Pride to humility. This is for your husband. So, <laughs> Star Wars happened. I mean, that's the first time anybody's ever guessed it the first time who didn't know me. So, way to go. So, my mom took me to Star My mom took me to Star Wars 43 years ago in 1977. And from that point on, I wanted to be like, do I, what was the thumbs up for? Star Wars, okay, um, so from that point on, I wanted to be like Luke Skywalker fighting the Death Star, and um, um, uh, the, the quickest way to be there when you don't have like an X-Wing and a Death Star is um, being an astronaut, so that's what I set my foot on the path to be. I was not very good in athletics, so I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't a jock, I certainly wasn't good with girls, although I got one, and that's all that matters. <laughs> And um, so I was your classic nerd. I was the nerd. I was good in academics. I set my foot on the path to be an aerospace engineer and, um, and work for NASA. That's what I wanted to do. And um, there's not many, um, well, I was born in Oklahoma. How many, like, rocket launching places are there in Oklahoma? There's not. And um, so I went to the closest thing, Oklahoma State University, which had a great engineering school. And what? Go Pokes. That's right. <laughs> Go Pokes. Um, and then um, my identity was fully in being the, the biggest hotshot astronaut that I could be. I ended up getting the Dean's Award for Engineering, and I'm there at Oklahoma State University. And I don't say that in order to brag on myself. I say that to show you where my identity was. Um, it wasn't until my senior year at Oklahoma State University where a man began to disciple me. He was a navigator. Anybody know what the navigators are? So they're very good with spiritual disciplines. So he came alongside me, and he began to love me. Um, so I was a senior at Oklahoma State University, and he would say, Brent, um, how are your devos going? And I would say, what's a devo? And um, that was a little joke, guys. And, um, and then he would say, what kind of, what are you, how are you memorizing scripture? And I would say, uh, why would I do that? So he taught me all the spiritual disciplines. And the things that he began to teach me, he said, Brent, you need to teach others. And so I did. For the first time in my life, I began to invest in um, other, other men, and I wasn't thinking about myself. So I invested in two freshmen and a sophomore in a Bible study, teaching them the spiritual disciplines like this guy was teaching me. One of the young men struggled from a small town in Oklahoma, and this is, he was struggling with depression. And um, so I could not help him. He was from a small town in Oklahoma, and he was... And this is where you say, well, Brent, I know we're in Iowa, but I think Oklahoma is worse. I think there's only small towns in Oklahoma. Is that right? And you say, yes, that's right. Um, he was from an unusually small town in Oklahoma in the Panhandle where there's nothing out there. And he came to the, the name of this town, even sounds riveting, Stillwater, Oklahoma, <laughs> where the Pokes are. And he was struggling with depression there. And um, he had left a high school sweetheart, small town, tight-knit family, and um, I did not know how to help him. Okay. I taught him the spiritual disciplines. He was still depressed. I sent him to my navigator friend. He, the navigator friend did not know how to help him. Sent him to my pastor. Pastor did not know how to help him. Pastor sent him to a Christian psychiatrist. I don't have anything against Christian psychiatrists. 
but um, he prescribed him some medications. And for what this young man was probably dealing with was a deep sense of adjusting and, um, to life and growing up. Okay, I know him today. He's not on Prozac today, so something was going on then. Um, I did not know how to help him. That left a small hole in my theology, um, interesting enough. But I love to minister. I, for the first time in my life, I lived outside of myself, and I loved ministering to these men. That was fulfilling to me. It ultimately became more fulfilling than building rockets, but that's what I did. I graduated Oklahoma State University, and then um, if you want to be an astronaut, a hotshot astronaut, does anybody know what school you go to? Just take a guess. You go to Purdue University, so that's where I... What? Boiler up. Boiler up. We got pokes and boiler up. And from the same table? Oh my goodness, you guys are like kindred spirits right there. Um, so I went to Purdue University, the home of Neil Armstrong and all of that. And um, here's what happened. Guess what? Um, at Oklahoma State University, I was a very big fish in a very little pond. And I found my identity in that. At Purdue University, I was a very little fish in a very big pond. And just in the irony of God, what do you think I started struggling with? In the irony of providence of God. Um, just say it, say it. Yeah, I was struggling with aeronautical engineering, yes, but um, say something. <laughs> uh, my, my graduate level math class, that's what it did for me, not the engineering classes. It was the abstract 511 linear algebra graduate level. Not, but anyway, I'm, I'm complaining to you, I'm lamenting. Um, and, um, and then, um, so I started struggling with depression and then what happened was God brought me to a church that taught about the sufficiency of the scriptures. That term may not mean much to you, but here's what I began to learn. The scriptures had answers for all of life, okay? So whether it's my anxiety, whether it's my fear, whether it's my marriage, whether it's my dating, so the script, where it's parenting, scriptures have answers for all of life. Say all, say all. Okay, so um, when I began to understand that, you know, this is, this is the church that I'm at now and I'm a pastor at. When I began to understand all of that, I wanted to build people and not rockets anymore. So that's why I'm here today as a pastor wanting to build people. Still love rockets, still love Star Wars. I was just in Disney World. And why would I go to Disney World? Because there's a new Star Wars land there, the greatest ride ever, Rise of the Resistance. It was wonderful. It's worth going to Disney World for. All right, that's my story. And, and God judged me for it. I went to Disney World, I got a cold, and I still have it. So, <laughs> Janet, go ahead. Um, I was raised in a very religious home, uh, but we were, I, I did not know the Lord. I was a very Catholic home. And when I went off to college, uh, as a freshman in college, I was the gospel was explained to me, I, I now know it was explained to me many times before that, but I did not understand it. But the Lord allowed me to understand it as a freshman in college, and I came to Christ and started going to church. Um, well, it took me a year to find a church, and we're, we're at a Baptist place, right? Our church is Baptist too. Yes. <laughs> I, I did not want to be Baptist. The goal was I know I'm going to have to leave the church I'm at because after meeting with two priests, after being sent there by my mother, it was pretty evident we didn't agree um, on what scriptures had to teach. So I knew I had to leave, but the last thing I wanted to be was Baptist. So I spent a year trying a bunch of other churches, even though the woman who led me to Christ was a Baptist missionary. And she was very patient, 
She never told me. I just, and I said to her, I don't want to go to your church, but will you help me find a church? <laughs> and she was like, yes, I will. Let's look at scripture. So we did. And a year later, I went to her church. Um, but it took me a while. So I, I did that, um, got very involved in that ministry, learned a lot. There's a ton I could tell you about that, but um, I won't. Um, but went from um, <coughs> a fear of man that was so enslaving that I, dis- I picked my major based on what would not require public speaking as a course. So I went through the plan of study, and human resource management did not require public speaking. Go figure. Go figure. When that's what I then did for a living, and I had to teach all the time. But the Lord wanted me to have that degree, and I was not even a believer, and I just, that's what I did. So I, that's how I picked my major. I was so terrified of people. Was not going to do that. Um, but God. But in the middle of that, um, when I graduated, I had a passion for wanting to help people, but similar to Brent, I really didn't know how. I'd had a woman disciple me for a long time, and, and she was wonderful, but... Um, I didn't know how to help people, but the family that basically adopted me at that church, their daughter and son-in-law had come up to Faith Church and talked about the counseling ministry. So um, I quit my job. I graduated, was working at General Electric. I quit my job, moved up to Indiana to go through the training, and then my plan was to head back to Florida, which is where I'm from, um, after I got the training in counseling. Um, But... I got the training in counseling, and then I started helping in the college class where there was this graduate student who looked really cute when he played the keys. (laughs) That would be me. Yes. (laughs) And I never went back. Um, But that's, I guess, the short version of my story. And um, there's a little bit more story to how we met. Um, Kyle asked me to share some, or somebody did. I can't remember who, (laughs) because I'm on drugs. And um, the... um, I went to Faith Church, and I was a graduate student, as you know, in, um, in aerospace engineering. And I was one of the older students there because they had a college ministry at Purdue University. And so I was one of the older students. There was a pastor there who had invited um, um, this young lady who was older. slightly older than me. I married an older lady, which has been a wonderful thing. Do I have any other guys who have done that? So, uh, way to go, guys. You're the wise ones here. So, we might actually die at the same time and um, <laughs> go together, like Romeo and Juliet. They're like, I don't go know ahead. what else. So, we're not going to commit suicide. That's not what I meant. So, but um, um, the pastor had invited um, Janet to come into the college ministry to disciple some of the ladies, but um, I I get slightly ahead of myself because there was one time that Janet, we actually met, and Janet does not remember. That's how much of an impression I made on her. So it's a Wednesday night, and those of you who know my church in in Lafayette probably know Pastor Viers, and Pastor Viers was teaching, and um, he had us break up into groups, small groups, and to share prayer requests. And um, I had hoped that this young lady who was in the audience that night would be in my, my group because I had seen her singing in a choir back in the days where we had choirs. I think that's a sin these days. I don't know. But um, um, all you have is worship teams. But anyway, um, the, she was in the choir. I, I saw this gorgeous young lady, and I said, I would really like to get to know her, but she's But probably, she's too old for but me. But she's too old for me. <laughs> but she looked good. And... Um, so, 
but uh, so I did not arrange it that she was in my small group prayer group that that night, but she was there. So we shared prayer requests, and like on Wednesday nights, you have a prayer prompt. We had something called a prayer prompter where there were prayer requests on, and I had written her prayer requests down. And um, so there was also notes on the devotion that night, and my habit was to keep my notes, um, so I'd go back and read them. Um, that was the first time I met her. She does not remember that at all. But five years into our marriage. I uh, didn't believe him either. And I told her, we met back on a Wednesday night. And she said, no, we didn't. I don't ever remember you. And so like five years into our marriage, I was looking through my old notes. And guess what I found? I found the Wednesday night prayer prompter and it had her prayer request on it. So I went to Janet and I said, told you so. <laughs> <laughs> I said it a little nicer than that. In the marriage retreat, I need to say that. Um, and um, so, but we got to know each other in the college ministry serving. So the, the desire that God had planted in me for ministry to others um, began to blossom at Purdue. So I was serving and um, my desire for Rocket science has had settled down some, and Janet was interested in ministry as well. But she was a human resource director at Purdue University. And as she mentioned, that she did a lot of teaching with human resources. And so they have a night shift, supervisors and stuff. So she would go into um, teach and train the um, supervisors on how to manage. And um, so it'd be really late at night, like 11 o'clock at night. 11 to 1. 11 to 1. I mean, oh my goodness. And so uh, here I was. The, I didn't want her to be there alone. <laughs> and at midnight, and uh, so I volunteered, shiverous me, because I was interested in her, to escort her. Um, and that's how I began to get to know her. By She would go train and... Um, I would lay on the concrete floor in her office <laughs> and, and sometimes falling asleep and snoozing but um, as she was there and then I would walk her to her car in the evening. So that was how we met originally and I won't go into our dating story because it would be a long, very traumatic experience for you and us as well because um, <laughs> we were both very selfish. Well, let me say it this way. I was very selfish and immature. And so was I. <laughs> So we never really knew if we were dating or not because of me. And um, at one point I said, I will tell you, this is what I said at one point, to, know, to show you that you have somebody in front of us, front of you that is, is just, well, I don't walk, I didn't come out of the womb with a King James Bible and wearing a three-piece suit, okay? So um, I once said to Janet when I was in one of my most immature moments, I don't know if I want to marry you. I mean, what if somebody better comes along? I mean, I know all the ladies groan and you're about to throw your cupcakes at me. I understand that. Um, and she's still here, okay? So we'll talk. He was a learner. But, he uh, hadn't been taught and anytime he saw something from scripture, you changed, but you had yeah, not had a lot of teaching. Yeah, and, um, but I can't imagine anybody better than Janet right now. So after 26 years of marriage. So that's a little bit about our story. Thank you, sweetie. All right. <clears throat> um, 
you'll hear from her a little bit more tomorrow, and then um, so tomorrow morning, and then uh, we'll give our kind of a marriage testimony as well tomorrow, and then um, in the last session, we'll open it up for question and answers as well. Uh, we'll hopefully in your last session we'll talk about sex to keep you here, guys. Keep you guys here, so make sure you stay through the retreat, and um, and then Q and A as well. Well, the title of this retreat is The Taste of Eden, and there is a problem with a title like that, okay? So let me bring up your notes here. So, so we got through who we are, Brent and Janet. Um, there is a danger with a title of Taste of Eden, and here are the dangers. You don't have to write this down. You're welcome to if you want to, but... Um, Setting expectations that cannot be fulfilled. If, if I come and tell you that your marriage can be great and it's not, I've set you up for failure. So there is that danger. There's the danger also that uh, maybe you are in a marriage where your spouse is not a Christian. Um, maybe your spouse right now is not walking with the Lord. And um, maybe you're in a marriage where, you know, you thought you were getting in a marriage where you wouldn't be lonely, but you're the loneliest you've ever been because of this marriage. The, the promise of it's not good to be alone didn't work for you. So it's really far from this. So it's problematic. That title is problematic for you um, in that regard. But from the outside, from the outset, I want to give you some hope. You know, one of the greatest triumphs over evil is this. So let's say your spouse is not where they should be. Maybe your spouse is just really struggling in some ways and not even kind. One of the greatest triumphs over evil is when evil is used by God to make you more godly. So, I mean, so what is a better triumph over evil than when evil produces godliness in you? as opposed to the triumph of evil when evil produces bitterness in you or anger or... So, so let me just say to you that um, there may be some very there difficult marriages right here. And, um, and we've had our share of those at Faith Church. I can remember a time when my wife came home and we were working with a couple and the husband would just... He was sinning. And uh, we, we eventually disciplined this man from our church. We had to because he continued to repeat his sin over and over. And my wife came home and said to me, this is just unjust suffering. And I said, I know, honey, and, and we're going to be acting soon. But against the darkest sin here, um, this individual, the wife here has the greatest she will have the greatest hope if she becomes more and more like Christ in the midst of this. Um, so she never, she never forgot that statement, and she says it better than I just did. Um, so, you know, as you become more and more like Christ, and you behave in a way that is more and more godly, then you allow the environment to be the best it possibly can to allow repentance of an ungodly spouse to be possible, but that doesn't guarantee that it will. Finally, the third danger of this kind of a topic, a taste of Eden, is 
um, putting our hope in our marriage. So directing your desires away from Christ as opposed to, uh, I'm sorry, directing your desires into your marriage as opposed to directing your desires into Christ. So I understand there's dangers of this kind of topic, a taste of Eden. However, let me define what I mean by a taste of Eden. You know, every good gift that we have, I think it was John, I, I don't remember, is one of John Piper or John Piper's acolytes, not acolytes, um, little Padawans, I'll use Padawan Star Wars guys, um, said something like this, um, like every good gift is like a ray of light. It may have been C.S. Lewis, if I can remember. If I see a ray of light, its trajectory is taking me back to the source. If I follow that ray of light back to the source of the sun, where I see the source. So every good gift, and marriage is a good gift, um, takes us back to the source of the ultimate delight. So that's why I say here only a taste of Eden. Your full desires will not be met here on this earth ever. Say ever, ever. Okay. So, but to whatever extent we can have a little taste of Eden on this earth, we should strive for that and then um, thank the Lord for that. So with that in mind, um, let, me, let me submit to you that our marriages in the beginning were meant to be in a sanctuary type status. When I say the word sanctuary, what do you think of? When I say sanctuary, what do you think of? Okay, you th um, Star Wars lady would like, what's your name? Deanne. Deanne says safety, and that's exactly right. Sanctuary safety. What else do you think of? Church? Okay. Sanctuary church. Okay. And we used to call the auditorium the sanctuary, right? Okay. And, and that is interesting because sanctuary church stems from what kind of um, religious institution in the Old Testament? Anybody remember? Religious institution. So, so in the New Testament, we have the assembly called the church. What was the sanctuary? Excuse me. Excuse me. <coughs> before synagogues. Before synagogues. Temple and tabernacle was called a sanctuary. What was true of a sanctuary? Okay, God's presence. Now, I'm going to tell you that in the beginning, in the beginning of the Garden of Eden, I'm going to use the term sanctuary for the Garden of Eden, and I'm going to tell you specifically why. Okay? So, um, there are parallels, and those of you who have been to the BCTC, the Biblical Counseling Training Conference, and probably track one of the tracks outside of track one, you've heard this before. So this is where you can humor me. But um, in the, uh, there's a parallel between the tabernacle, the temple, and the Garden of Eden. This has become more popular today as scholars are doing more biblical theology and tracing themes throughout the Bible. But let me just show you something very quickly by way of overview. It's, in your, it's on my screen right now, but um, you can write this down if you want. You don't have to. Okay? But the, tabard, the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. And here's why I say that. Okay? So, what was on when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden? What was on the east of the garden, guarding the way to the Garden of Eden? Does anybody remember? Cherubim. Okay, if you remember the tabernacle, it was outlined with curtains. 
Does anybody remember what was embroidered on the curtains? Cherubim. Say, hmm, say, hmm. Okay. In the middle of the Garden of Eden was a tree of life. In the middle of the tabernacle, you can read Exodus chapter 25. The menorah was described in terms of branches, bulbs. And the candelabra was described as a tree. Okay, say, hmm. <laughs> okay. Also, in regard to... Um, now, this is not on there, but I believe it's in Leviticus or Numbers where God picks what God says, I will walk with you, Israel, in the tabernacle. So I will walk with you around the desert. What was God doing in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve? Say walking. And say, hmm. Okay? And if you read Genesis 2, you'll understand that Eden was in a land where there was gold, silver, precious stones all the way around, and the tabernacle was decorated with gold, silver, precious stones. All of that. So what is that saying? So what it's saying to me is that um, first, the first sanctuary was the Garden of Eden. That was the first sanctuary, and that's where marriage started. When the tabernacle came along, however, God was saying, I, I always wanted to be dwelling with my people. I always wanted that. So what is the tabernacle in terms of Eden? Tell me, what is the tabernacle in terms of Eden? You can just say the title of this seminar. What, what is the title of the seminar? So what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle was a reestablishment of the taste of Eden. But there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference in the tabernacle presence of God and Eden. What was that? And turn off his cell phone. That was Satan calling, I believe. So <laughs> just like he tried to get in the garden, he's trying to get in right here. I'm just kidding with you. So um, my phone will probably ring next. So um, what was my question? So what is the difference between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden? How is, how is sin, how is it different? How did sin affect the tabernacle? Again, this is where you talk. Raise your hand. How did the sin affect the presence of God with us in the tabernacle? What do you see that is different than Eden? Okay, there's separation. There's all kinds of walls here. So there's the curtain. There's the outer court curtain. There's the inner curtain. And in the Holy of Holy, where only a sliver of God's presence was, called the Shekinah of Glory. You know, in a pre only one priest could enter there one time per year on the under penalty of death. And that priest was there to cleanse God's holy home with what? It was blood. Okay, so blood was like Clorox, right? If you, want, if you, if you don't want, when I come into your home after I leave, you got to do Clorox right now because I'm, I'm contagious. Well, not really, but... Um, because I'm on antibiotics, but blood is like the Clorox that expunges your sin, your contamination, so that you might dwell with God. And that's a sign of his justice. So the tabernacle presence of God is different in that way. 
So I've established for you that in my mind, I believe that the Eden was a sanctuary paradise. Okay, so, and let's see what else is true about that sanctuary existence in the Eden sanctuary for just a moment. Okay, does anybody know what Eden means? Ah, if you can read it here. So there's the question. <laughs> um, Eden means, say it, imagine that. So what does that say? So the word Eden means delight. So if you name your child Eden, that you're, it's a beautiful name. And um, so living with God, walking with him, okay, in marriage was a, meant to be a delightful thing, a wonderful thing. Also in the sanctuary presence of God, there was abundant life. How do we know that? Well, the tree of life was there. There was no death. Okay, but let me, um, let me illustrate this even a little bit more. Okay, <coughs> excuse me. Let me give you, let me give you something here. Um, let me tell you this principle. There was a guy named Thomas Howard, in his book, The Night Far Spent, states this. This may not resonate with you right, right at this moment, but this is going to be one of the bases for our entire time together. The choreography of heaven. The, chor the choreography of heaven is my life for yours. Okay, so think about that. The choreography of heaven is my life for yours, meaning that God has wound, God has embedded in this universe a particular design where my life for yours produces life. How were Adam and Eve even existing? God created them and he breathed his life into theirs so that they became living being. My life for your, the choreography of heaven. This is so ingrained in the universe and is the way of life that um, you may not even know it, but um, this is what happens with your children. So Adam and Eve were not children per se, they were childlike. But let me ask you a question, okay? Um, from conception to three years old, Okay, just um, think back from conception <laughs> to three years old. Do you remember anything from that point in time? Do you remember anything from that point in time? If you tell me, Brent, I do, you're really lying, okay? Okay. Let me ask you, who remembers pretty much everything from conception to three years old? Your parents. Their life revolved around you. You gave nothing to your parents. You were like a parasite to them, right? That's what you were like. Your parents gave everything to you. Your mom remembers the nausea you caused her in her first trimester. Your mom remembers some of the greatest pain known to humanity, childbirth. Your mom knows that, and you weren't even aware. Your mom remembers sleepless nights and sore body parts to give you rest and nourishment. Your dad remembers having to work day and night to get your room ready and pay for the hospital bills. Your dad remembers, remembers 
you, your little two-year-old self, throwing up orange medicine all over his light-colored carpet. Your dad remembers that. That's because that happened with my children. <laughs> you realize that you here only exist because somebody gave their life for you. You realize that, don't you? At some point in time, you exist because somebody gave their life for you. And oh my goodness, this is why abortion is so heinous. And I'm not going to just rail on the, the women here. Where's a man in this decision? As opposed to my life for yours, it's my life for me, and I will extinguish life. So in the Garden of Eden, God, all of this started, the choreography of having my life for yours started with God's life-giving present, giving it to dust, to animate dust. Okay, so there was life in the Garden of Eden, in the sanctuary presence. There was, so in the sanctuary of delight, there was abundant life. There was also innocence, okay? How is innocence pictured in Genesis chapter 2? Okay, I'm not going to read Genesis 2. Um, if you're coming here to a conference, most likely you probably know a little bit about the Bible here Like if you're coming to a conference like this. So how is innocence pictured in Genesis chapter 2? They were naked and not ashamed. Now, how on earth does that picture innocence? Well, let me help you on that. Who do you know that runs around naked and not ashamed? And don't say your spouse. Yes. From conception to three years old, my children. They have no concept that there's something to hide. Right? Now, I'm not saying that Adam and Eve were children again, but they were childlike. And when, Ad, when Moses is writing this, one of the pictures that he's drawing is that Adam and Eve were childlike in their innocence. They had no shame. Okay? So, um, there was nothing to be ashamed about. Okay? So, no shame, no need to cover or fix any brokenness. So in the sanctuary, now, and I hope you're seeing this, the meaning of Eden delight, abundant life, innocence. Um, this is where we're going to go to in our marriages, hopefully, that we can have a, a renewed taste of this. So innocence, number four, intimacy. There was intimacy in the garden sanctuary. How is innocence pictured in, I'm sorry, how is intimacy pictured in Genesis 2, okay? So how is intimacy pictured in Genesis 2? Okay? Anything? How would you say? Okay, I can outweigh you here. Gen yes? Okay, intimacy. So there was intimacy between God and man, right? So in Genesis 1, you have this transcendent God who speaks and things happen. He's like, uh, he's like ominous and, and huge. In Genesis 2, he comes alongside and he picks up dust and he breathes into the dust. He breathes his life into the dust. And he's intimate and he walks with Adam and Eve. And there's, so there's intimacy between God and man. Um, how else is this picture, pictured? Bone of my bone. Bone, let's go with that, bone of my bone. This is a beautiful picture here. And this is picturing intimacy. So God says to Adam, when Adam is alone, it's not good for you to be alone. So marriage is, a, marriage is one solution to the aloneness problem. 
But the moment he says that, it's not good for you to be alone, Adam. What does he do next? He brings the animals by. What? What is God doing with the animals? So he has Adam name every animal. There's the giraffe God. I'm going to name that one giraffe. How can I reach her lips to kiss her, God? I mean, that, that's not going to be my companion. God, that one's a hippo. I'm going to name it a hippo. That is a cruel joke if that's my companion. God was bringing the animals by to show him that he was alone. There was no mate for him. And to stir in him a, a desire for something greater and more beautiful. So he puts Adam to sleep. Okay? Now tell me, what was Adam made out of originally? What was Adam made out of? Dust. What were the animals made out of? Okay, you're not as quick on that one, but it's the same thing. Dust. Say dust. What was Eve made out of? Adam. It was not close enough for Eve to be made out of dust. She was made out of him. And the moment, the moment that he wakes up and he sees this one, he, he says, oh my goodness, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in the Hebrew, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman in that passage is isha. Um, they almost sound identical, ish and isha. The, oh, here's what's really going on. Um, woman is the, ah, on my ish. <laughs> That's really what's going on there. Assuming there's a closeness even in the sounds, and Adam is enamored with what God has said, this one is bone of my bone, so there's intimacy there. And not only was the term naked and not ashamed used for innocence, naked and not ashamed is also used for intimacy. There was nothing between Adam and Eve, not even an article of clothing. Can you imagine this? You have nothing to hide. There is no, there is no secret sin. There is no wondering what my wife would think because there's, there's nothing that I've done wrong. Wouldn't it be amazing that there is absolutely nothing hidden, there is absolutely no shame, so that I could stand naked before God. So God's, God is described as the God who dwells in unapproachable lights. And in His brilliance, I can stand basking in His light because there is no stain in me. I have nothing to be ashamed of. And I'm standing before somebody, and I don't have to put on a mask. I don't have to say how great I am. I don't have to prove that I'm better than you to cover any of my blot or my stain. That would be an amazing thing, and that's what was going on in the Garden of Eden. Okay? So intimacy. Um, there is purpose. <coughs> when I talk about purpose... Let's see how much time I got. Uh, okay. Um, should I do this or not? Um, what? You want me to do the purpose thing? You want me to? Have you seen the purpose thing? You haven't seen it, but you want me to do it? <laughs> I understand the Iowa caucuses. I understand those. <laughs> Um, let me not do it. Um, if I have a little more time tomorrow, I'll show it to you a little bit more. <laughs> On your notes there, you're writing, the, what is our purpose? 
the image and likeness. I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to develop this, but write this down. Here's what image and likeness means. Okay, you ready? You are the visible representation of the of the. I'll say that again. You are the visible representation of the in, invisible God. That may not resonate with you much right now. You are the visible representation of the invisible God. You are the visible representation of the invisible God. Image and likeness. So when people look at you, what are they supposed to see? You are the visible representation of the invisible God. When people look at you, what are they supposed to see? God. God and Christ. We're not. We're still in Genesis, so um, we'll get to. We will. We God likeness. There you go. We'll get to Christ. Um, you are the visible representation of the invisible God. And what did God say to Adam and Eve? Okay. God said to them, "What was the first commandment to to, to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply." So if Adam and Eve are the visible representation of the invisible God, what is he wanting them to produce? More, little visible representations of the invisible God so that the whole earth would be filled with, filled with the representations of God. So the whole earth would be full of His glory. So all of the God's people would be valuing what He values, loving what He loves. And, okay, the Garden of Eden was some like small part on the land mass of there. God planted Adam and Eve there. And um, God dwelled in the sanctuary where there was life, innocence, intimacy, and purpose. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. What that had to mean was that garden of delight was going to expand over time and fill the whole earth with his glory. And the delight would be everywhere on the earth. Okay? The whole earth is full of his glory. So you are the visible representation of the invisible God. Okay? Now, what's the opposite of delight? What's the opposite of delight? This is not hard. If we need a rocket science, we have one. Um, <laughs> what's the opposite of delight? What? Misery. So outside of a sanctuary, what happens in Genesis 3 is everything is reversed, okay? So the rest of the biblical story is about life not in, not in a delightful sanctuary, but in the wilderness. So the opposite of delight is something other than delight, misery. Um, what's the opposite of... Um, What's the opposite of life? Death. What's the opposite of what's the opposite of innocence? Guilt. What's the opposite of intimacy? That one may be a little bit harder. Okay, so if intimacy is a closeness, what's the opposite of that? Separation. So now what we're experiencing are marriages outside of the sanctuary. We're east of Eden. Alienation. Alienation, how did this happen? Well, you know the story of the fruits. So look at Genesis chapter 3 for just a moment. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. 
as you do, I'm just going to take a quick drink. <coughs> choreography of heaven what was it the choreography of heaven my life for yours what's the opposite of that and that would be the choreography of what choreography of how my life for me so Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 no verse 5 the serpent says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll be all that you can be. You need to find your true self. You need to go and fulfill who you are. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to her eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... Say, my life for me, my life for me. Say that, my life for me. Then the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate, my life for me. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord. The pr they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, now they have something that they're stained with. Okay. And their natural instinct is to hide and cover. They need a covering to stand before this God. And then the Lord God said, called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the fruit and I ate. Now, this is so sad. This is so sad right here. Um, I'm going to make it funny. Just, just, just notice the turn from Genesis 2.24. No, Genesis 2.23. This one is this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What is Adam saying now? That one, that one that you gave me, God. You can already see the separation starting here. Okay, so the sanctuary is dissolving. Okay, so how did this happen? My life for me. And here's what our culture is doing. You know, our culture... This is the permeating principle of our culture. Just go find who you are. If you can just be all that you can be. If you can become self-actualized by, by building up enough self-esteem. Do you understand when I do that, even in marriage, if I say, my hus husband, your role is to help your wife be all that she can be and vice versa, there's an interesting dynamic going on there that feeds the selfishness. And that actually destroys unity. That's not the focus that we're supposed to be having here. Um, let me give you just a humorous example that I'm going to build upon a little bit tomorrow as well. 
Um, well, before I do that, I don't know if you're like me, but um, um, when I got married, I realized how selfish I really was. Marriage is the, and we'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, marriage is the eye-opener of you realize if when you're living with somebody day in and day out, how much, but um, um, how selfish I am. And that is exponentially multiplied when, well, what's the next step? That is exponentially multiplied when what? You have children, okay? Now, have you ever been on a vacation where everybody was expecting a great time and it turned out just so rotten? You're laughing because it's true. <laughs> when we were at Disney World, and by the way, we went to Disney World, I love this, without children. Um, and, and my daughter at Christmas time gave me and Janet shirts that said, um, we're at Disney World without our children. And uh, we, wear, we wore those shirts down at Disney, and I can't believe how many parents were there and said, man, I wish I was here without my children. <laughs> So you go to Disney World, the happiest place on earth, and everybody's screaming and angry. I mean, what's going on? When a vacation goes awry, you get like four or five people going to on vacation, and everybody is thinking about what? This is my time to think about who. And then there's division and alienation in your, in your vacation. Let me give you a humorous example of, and I'm going to build on this tomorrow, um, just with the question of why do we do what we do so much and how this, how my life for me also begins to divide. So those of you who have been at the conference have heard this before, but uh, this is a silly example, but I'll extrapolate it tomorrow, and you'll see maybe where I'm going with this and how significant this actually is. So back in 2014, I got my Ph.D. in the Old Testament, not in engineering, by the way, and um, there's a whole reason for the Old Testament, but um, I'll go into that another day. That was a nine-year process of getting my Ph.D., um, and at the end of the Ph.D., they tell you to write a dissertation, okay? And a dissertation, a thesis, is where they tell you to write on something that nobody's ever written before, right? Anybody have Ph.D. here? Okay, any? Nobody knows this? Nobody knows this? Okay, well, now you know this. If you go for your PhD, they're going to say, hey, write on something that nobody's ever written before. And then I know Ecclesiastes says what? There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> so they give you an impossible task, right? So it was w during one of those times I was dwelling on that. <laughs> when my PhD dissertation was not going so well and I came home and I was in a grumpy mood, otherwise known as sinfully angry. And um, I came home to my wife. She, she's an excellent wife, Proverbs 31. That is her. And she fixed a, a fantastic meal. And um, because I am angry that my life is not going where it needs to go in regard to the dissertation, I come home and don't focus on all the wonderful things that she made that was marvelous. There is one thing on the table that is not on the table. And, uh, and you have to understand how much I love this. Okay? And so on the salad, I love salad. 
but it's even better with these bite-sized pieces of salty, savory pieces of divine food called bacon. You know this, right? <laughs> and so I asked, yes. And I asked my wife, where's the bacon? And she says, what does she say? What, she, what do you think she says? There's no bacon on, the, there's no bacon on my salad. So, so what does she say? Oh, my goodness. We're all out. And then I start saying, what do you mean we're all out? Honey, you know how I love bacon. Uh, yeah, from the guy who also said, you know, honey, what, what if somebody else better comes along? You can, you can imagine me saying something like this. I, I admit it. I admit it. But let's start talking about your stories, too, in just a moment. My wife was certainly not appreciating the priority I put on bacon. So if I had my choice, my kids would be clothed in bacon like that. Those are not my kids. Those are not my kids, by the way. Um, in Lafayette, every Christmas we have a living nativity. I have proposed a bacon nativity, but they don't, they're not going with that. Um, also, also, I love this one. Piglet says, how do you spell love? Pooh says, you don't spell it, you feel it. Bacon is written in there. Tigger the next day says, I haven't seen Piglet lately. Will he be joining us for breakfast? Bacon is powerful enough to rewrite the classics. <laughs> now that night, as I was being unkind to my wife, it was creating division and alienation in my family. My wife existed to serve me, okay? My wife existed to bring home the bacon, right? That's what she existed for. There was another little joke that you just missed, okay? <laughs> so my life for me, creating division in the home, alienation, that's what was happening in the Garden of Eden and it's happening in our home. The ability to serve another person, to continually think of their own needs, that their needs ahead of your own, um, is a supernatural capacity and it's not instinctive. Okay. Our marriage is outside sanctuary, alienation, separation. Our marriage is outside of the sanctuary in East of Eden, guilt. We have shame now. We're, we're no longer naked and not ashamed. We stand before one another naked and ashamed in the shame of our nakedness. What did, Adam, what did Adam and Eve try to do with their nakedness? And note, uh, this is fascinating also. Their childlike response continues. Okay, so... They were childlike in their innocence, but they're childlike also in their response to handling this feeling that they've never felt before. Now there's stains in them, and there's the God whose presence is with them, the God who dwells in unapproachable lights, and there's a stain in them, and they cannot stand before Him. So notice their childlike response, and I'll illustrate in this way. How many of you um, those of you who've had toddlers before, um, are they good at hide-and-seek? Are they very good at hide-and-seek? You're laughing because you know the answer is no. <coughs> they put their little head, when you're playing hide-and-seek, they put their head on the table and their bum is sticking out and, and they think you can't see them. Adam and Eve put on leaves and go hide in the trees from the God who knows the difference between a tree and you. I mean, he knows the difference. So their childlike response continues. 
but they're trying to find a way to cover their brokenness. Now, now listen to me. Listen to me. You are doing that in your marriages. Because in your marriages, and Janet and I are still learning this, but I would say for the first seven years of our life, we were more competitors than teammates, trying to show which one is better. And I'm saying to you also, so let's just chase that down for just a second. How do we try to cover our innate sense of brokenness? We all know that there's an innate sense of brokenness. Now we stand before the God who dwells in unapproachable lights, and we know something is wrong with us. And then when we get in a marriage relationship, one who you'll be living with, and you're there, and there's something wrong with you, how, how do we tend to cover our brokenness that is just as inadequate and insufficient as fig leaves? You tell me. How do we try to cover our shame and our guilt? Raise your hand now so I can have a break from talking. Or I'm going to break out in a coughing fit, and um, this first table will not like that. Yes. Perfectionism. What do you mean by that? Make everything look perfect, okay? No, it can't be. But I try to make everything look perfect, okay? So I try to cover by making things look perfect. How else do I cover? My shame and my guilt and my brokenness. And you can also, it doesn't have to be just with your spouse, but in general with everything. How do I, yes. Oh, yeah. I start blaming and I've been counseling for since 1997, however many years that is. And most of the time, couples are coming in and they're saying, fix my spouse. So that is a covering. Come in, I want you to fix my spouse. Okay, so I cover by doing that, by blame shifting, and that's what Adam and Eve did. Okay, what else did I cover? Um, um, by perfectionism, so that was two. What, how else do I cover my sin and my shame? Control, okay? I try to control the situation, okay? Well, how else do I cover my sin and my shame? Yes. I ignore it. Act like it to go away. Problems remain unresolved over time, and it'll continue to get worse. Yes. Bringing up my spouse's issues. Every time they get close to one of my own hot button or my issues, I will point to my wife and say, or my spouse, how much worse yours are. Janet, what were you going to add? Oh, you had your hand up? Okay. Or you were just saying, Brent, you've talked long enough. Um, <laughs> waving me off. She's doing this. Okay, how else do we cover our, cover our sin? What do you mean, substitution? Okay, uh, distance. By, the, by creating an intentional distance between us. How else? Deny it, deny it, deny it. Uh, uh, yes, Janet. Staying really busy. Staying really busy. Yeah. And one of the other things, it's close to perfectionism. But here we are. So I'm speaking to regular Baptist churches here. I'm a part of regular Baptist churches in Indiana. 
I'm going to say something. I may step on toes. That's okay. I'm leaving tomorrow anyway. Uh, Six-hour drive. I don't have to be back to... So um, we can be legalistic and self-righteous. Okay? If I can just... If I can just show everybody that I go to church, I read my Bible, I'm not like those, I'm not like those people who put on the Iowa caucuses, the Democratic caucuses. I'm not like that. I'm better than that. And I'm better than my spouse. So my self-righteousness is a covering for myself. Okay? So, and... Christians can easily fall into that. I know you are saved by grace and not your own righteousness, but then we start using the religion out there to promote our own superiority over our spouse, our children, or the community out there. That is our covering. We'll talk about that in just a moment, about how wicked that actually is. Okay. Um, Covering to fix our brokenness. Now, what is our purpose? What is your purpose? You are the. You are. What was your purpose again? Okay, I didn't teach you very well. You are the visible representation of the invisible God. What's the opposite of that? <laughs> well, in Genesis chapter, <coughs> in Genesis chapter, um, in my head. Um, 11, Tower of Babel. Remember what mankind said he wanted to do. Somebody tell me what mankind said he wanted to do. Mankind says, let's gather together, build a tower. What was the purpose of the tower? Okay, two, two, two purposes. This is interesting. I mean, this is fascinating. To build a tower to reach to heaven. To bridge the gap between heaven and earth. I, I don't think they literally meant that, but um, fascinating imagery. Genesis chapter, okay. When you think of heaven, who lives there? When you think of earth, who lives there? In the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, where was God and where was man? So... Heaven and earth was merged. Heaven and earth was merged. Man sends the access to God's holy home in the Garden of Eden was, was blocked. Heaven and earth was separated. After the flood, Eden is no longer even recognizable. Nobody knows where Eden was. So, um, but yet the Tower of Babel, the men says, we're going to bridge that gap on our own. We're going to build a tower. And they were trying to be godlike, trying to be, and, and, and here's why I know that. So let's build a tower to reach to heaven so that we might what? What is the next phrase? So that we might what? Make a name for ourselves. What was, what, what is, what was their God-given purpose? We are the visible representation of the invisible God. Who are we supposed to be making the name for? Filling his filling the earth with his glory. We're supposed to be making a name for God. Who are they trying to make a name for? And I know the story is about language, but there's something also significant in this. It's also about the pride of man. And when you, 
when you try to make a name for yourself as opposed to God, God will give you a name. See, listen to me, listen to me. When you make a name for yourself and you want to make a name for yourself, which is what we come out of the womb trying to do, and which was what we're trying to do in marriage is many times, be better than my spouse or compete with my spouse. Um, when I try to make a name for myself, God will give you a name. What name did he give in Genesis 11? What's it called? The Tower of what? I can't remember. Babel. What does Babel mean? If you look in your Bibles, you probably have a little footnote there. Babel means, what does, anybody, what does it mean? Confusion. Notice the huge irony in all of that. Why does it mean confusion? Why did God give them that? Because they confused their purpose. You only have two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. Really, that's it. The choreography of heaven is my life for yours. The choreography of hell is my life for me, making a name for myself. And if you choose that path, it always, 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 say always, say always, it always results in confusion. Okay, so right now, so right now, I know this to be the true because I know it in my marriage, but more important than experience, the Word of God says this. Wherever there is confusion in your marriages, I know there is one of you trying to make a name for yourselves. I know that. Scripture says that. Scripture says that. Okay, and um, what's the opposite of life? Okay, so our marriages east of Eden, alienation, guilt, confused purpose, and death. Say, Brent, I'm glad you came from Indiana to give us, give, make us all depressed. Um, let's talk a moment about the gospel sanctuary for just a moment. And then I'll let you go here and just let me give kind of have about 10 minutes here. And then I won't take the full time to 9 o'clock. So I'll give you some play time. In John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt. I know you've heard preachers say this probably. The word dwelt there is tabernacle. What is the significance of that? What is the significance of that, my friends? The word became flesh and tabern and dwelt among us, tabernacled. Can you guys see that? <coughs> What's the significance of that? Tell me the significance of that. What? Oh, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> tabernacle. What is a ta Christ tabernacled among us. What's happening with that? Yes. What, what happens with heaven and earth again? Heaven meets earth again. Eden comes back. Taste of Eden right there. And in John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The choreography of heaven, my life for yours. Christ lived the choreography of heaven. Notice, 
Mark 10.45. This is not on there. Mark 10.45. Hold on a second. Mark 10.45. Some of you have had this memorized. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his what? The word there in Greek is suke, his soul, his life being. Same kind of concept in Genesis 2 7, where God breathed into Adam the breath of life. My life for yours, the choreography of heaven. So the reason why we have the possibility of heaven meeting earth again and us having the presence of God with us is because there was a man who took our death for us so that we might have life with the Father. Intimacy restored with God. On the cross, Jesus, this is Tim Keller's, Tim Keller's terminology here. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced cosmic loneliness. In the Gospels, it talks about in the Garden of Eden. And I'll, I'll develop this a little bit more tomorrow. But um, right after the Garden of Eden, where Christ goes and meets Judas and all the disciples, and then Jesus Christ is hauled off, it says everybody left him and he was alone. All of his intimate friends were gone. Okay? And on the cross, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, all of our actions that are driving us to broken relationships, so my broken marriages, my broken relationship with kids, my broken relationships, which is my life for me, Jesus Christ, who never lived my life for me, took the penalty of alienation that you deserve and that you're, you and I are creating in our lives right now. So all of his disciples left him alone. And his father turned his face, turned his back on the son. Jesus Christ experienced cosmic alienation so that you could have intimacy with God. Now, no condemnation anymore. A covering for your brokenness. So this imagery, Janet and I will pick this up probably a little bit more tomorrow as well. But if I'm... Sta- I, I, the imagery of... I stand before God in the shame of my nakedness because I know... I know there's a dark stain in me. And I can try to put on righteous clothing of my own good works, but we know the scriptures say those are as filthy rags. Now, think with me for just a moment. Where was Christ's clothes on the cross? Tell me, tell me. Where was Christ's clothes on the cross? So if they were being divided among the soldiers, where were they not? So, so they were not on him, so that means he was utterly what? Have you ever thought about that? I know we sanitize that with fig leaves. 
He was naked on the cross. So here in Isaiah chapter 6, where all of the cherubim who, who have no stains in them, they are there hovering before the brilliant, white, hot holiness of God, and they have to cover their eyes, and there's no stain in them. But God allows His Son to be totally naked where all of the eyes are on Him. Tell me, tell me, why did God do that? What was, what was, the, what was the significance of that? What? He was innocent, but he was bearing the shame of our nakedness. He was bearing the shame of our nakedness. Why? So that we might be clothed in his righteousness. That's what, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And we can stand before God not with works of our own, but standing with the righteousness of Christ. And now intimacy can be cultivated with your spouse. When I am standing in that kind of situation, <coughs> when, I'm when I'm standing there, in the close of Christ, how does this help me to how does this help me to invest more in my spouse? Think about that for just a moment. How does this help me to continue to pour into my spouse when I'm standing there in the robes of Christ's righteousness, not my own? What will that do for me? What will that do for me? Tell me what that will do for me. It'll give me humility. Why? Why will that give me humility? Because you're exactly right. We didn't deserve it. If I'm standing in the robes of Christ, His righteousness, not my own, then what do I have to boast about to be better than you? So I look at my spouse and my primary focus is my sin is the most significant one that I should be in my mind right now, not yours. It, per, it puts me in humility. Okay. What else does that do for me? Yeah, if my spouse is sinning, what do they need to see the most? They need to see the visible representation of God in me. You're exactly right. So intimacy can now be cultivated with your spouse. A spouse transformed by the gospel in the way that I just described. Christ gave his life for mine, the choreography of heaven. Thus, I can give my life for my spouse. And even if I don't have a marriage that is intimate right now, my greatest intimacy, although I wish it was with my spouse, will ultimately be with, the God, with Christ who gave his life for me. And I'm not trying to compete with my spouse or prove something because I'm clothed in the righteousness 
of Christ so that I don't have to be better. I don't have to be right. I know that's hard. I know that's hard. Therefore, I can move freely to love my spouse in vulnerability, even if I have been hurt. Right? Janet's going to talk tomorrow a little bit about you know, those in the back background who have been traumatized by other people who have been hurt and how that affects marriage and all that kind of stuff. But in the gospel, I can move freely toward my spouse. I can give my life for my spouse because Christ, the choreography of heaven, has given his life for me. My greatest intimacy is not with this spouse that I'm trying to love. It is with God who loved me first. And I'm not, I don't have to prove myself to my spouse. It was never, my righteousness was never, my worth was never based upon my performance. It was Christ's performance on my behalf so that I can move toward you freely in love now and be vulnerable and continue to be vulnerable even when it hurts. And that's the sign of a very soft and pliable heart that that can continue to show forth the heart of Christ. C.S. Lewis, this is a great quote. And you've, you've heard it before, no doubt. To love at all is to be vulnerable. You've heard this. Love anything in your heart will be wrong and possibly broken. So I'm not saying, even in the taste of Eden, even with sinners, when you're in the wilderness, we're east of Eden now, you're going to be hurt. Okay. But to love anything in your heart will be wrong, possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, your heart, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. That was what our Savior did for us. That is the choreography of heaven, my life for yours. To love is to be vulnerable even to the point of death, which is what our Savior did. My life for yours. All right. Taste of Eden. Let's uh, stop right there. And um, before I let you go, here's also what I do. Um, I don't do this to pump me up. Um, I do this to see how well you're tracking and just to stimulate a little bit of discussion. Give me five answers of what was helpful to you tonight, what was, um, some, I mean, I'm not pretending that anything I said was new, so maybe something that you were reminded of, you were encouraged by. Um, so five answers. Number one, who will be first? What did you learn? What are you encouraged by, thankful for, or just reminded of in some way that you can encourage others with? Uh, yes. The visible representation of the invisible God. Yeah. 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 Visible. Re Let me park on that for just a moment. Um, Colossians one fifteen. In Christ is the image of who? The invisible God. Because we failed at being the visible representation of God, God sent the perfect visible representation of the invisible God. 
So if you want to see God now, who do you look at? Jesus. And, he, and hear this in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the what? Image of his son. So that he, Christ, might be the firstborn, firstborn among many brethren. Notice what's happening now. God is still filling his earth with the visible representation of the invisible God. Because as Christians, God is conforming you to the image of Christ, who is the perfect visible representation of God. And it's not being done by physical procreation like Adam and Eve. The second Adam is doing it through spiritual procreation. And then your marriage is making you more and more like Christ. And it's hard. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, but God is still all about his plan of filling the earth with his glory. But the perfect visible representation of God is Jesus. Thank you for that. Number two, what else did you learn? What else was helpful to you? What else was reminding? Something you were, you were reminded of? Yes, sir. And I'm so thankful that the men have led in a marriage conference. So two men first. Way to go. Okay, so if you want to make a name for yourself, you will get a name. What's that name? If you want to make a name for yourself, you will get a name. What's, what's that name you're going to get? You're going to get the name of confusion. When there's confusion in your marriage, one or both partners are making a name for themselves. Okay, what else? What else? Okay, yes. Yeah. In Christ, the intimacy has been restored because he was far from God so that you could be near to God. Okay, number three, number four. Right here, I'm just thankful that I saw all men who did this. Love the ladies. I love one lady. and um, <laughs> But the men were leading. Way to go. So, yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Uh, Chris Tomlin's song? Okay, David Crowder. On that theme, Heaven Meets Earth. I, I, I may not let you go early. Um, turn, <laughs> if you will, turn to John 1. Turn to John 1. We were, you already talked about John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, so heaven meets earth. There's even a more amazing reference to that as well. So, John 1, verse 46. So, John 1, 46. Nathaniel said to him, 
Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven. Excuse me, I'm about to cough. <coughs> you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I don't know if you know what that is a reference to. Does anybody know what that's a reference to? Um, heaven open and angels ascending and descending. Where is that imagery from? That is from the Jacob story. Okay, the Jacob where, I mean, wh what do we call that normally? Jacob's what? Okay, and it's not a ladder. It's not a ladder. Okay. It's a pyramid. It's like a pyramid. Staircase to heaven. So that's in Genesis 27-ish, somewhere in there. What? 28. So 28. I want you to notice the reversal of something. So Genesis 11 was the Tower of Babel, heaven, a man trying to get to heaven and build a bridge. Genesis 28. And, and this is fascinating. Jacob is leaving the promised land, the Eden land, and on his way out, he sees a vision of God. And in order to get this, you have to understand something about angels. When you see God, you normally see angels hovering around him. Isaiah chapter 6, okay? So if the angels are ascending and descending on this pyramid in Genesis 28, okay, if the angels are ascending and descending, what does that mean that God is doing? Where was God at one point? On earth. And depending upon how you translate one preposition, God was standing on top of the pyramid or God was standing beside Jacob. It could be translated either way. Heaven came down to earth. That's what that is saying. Man does not bridge the gap. Who has to bridge the gap? Okay, so now you have in John 1, Jesus saying, you're going to see angels descending on me. Who is the bridge between heaven and earth? Who is the bridge? Say his name. Do you see how beautiful that is? Okay. Thank you for that. One last comment, the, the man over here. Uh, say that again. Yeah, and I'm going to give you some more quotes on that tomorrow. So, uh, but you said that in a very unique way, clever way, pastoral way. You should be, are you a pastor? All right, you should be, you should be up here. Um, <laughs> it's not just, so my life for me is not just selfish. It's, say, well, say what he said. Hellish. It's hellish. And it results in death. So I got a huge quote on that tomorrow. 
Okay, but praise be the Lord Jesus Christ. He took the hellish for us. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for the beautiful storyline of Scripture that we can see here. And um, we're in the wilderness, Father, east of Eden. We thank you that you love us, that you will bridge the gap between the wilderness and, uh, and heaven. And uh, we thank you that Jesus Christ is that bridge. And we ask for the application of the gospel in his life to our marriages, and we'll see more and more how that happens tomorrow. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.